0: Hey everybody, my name is Jason Espy. I'm an elder here at Calvary, and I'm going to be reading the entire 19th Psalm, uh, all 14 verses. I'll be reading from the New American Standard uh, Version, 1995 edition. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through the entire earth in their utterances to the ends of the world. In them, he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man's run his course. It's rising is from one end of the heavens. In it's circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Verse seven. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also, also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen.
1: Thank you, Jason. Well, good morning, church family. It's good to be here with you all today. if you have your Bible, just stay in Psalm chapter 19. C.S. Lewis called Psalm 19 the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Today we are in our third and final week of our series on loving God with our heart, with our emotions, echoed from the great commandment in Matthew chapter 22. And every year what I hope to do is in between some of the books that we are unpacking together. As you know, that's kind of our DNA. We just walk verse by verse through different books of the Bible, but in between them, what I hope is we have at least three different sermon series each year that we would love the Lord your God with our mind, our knowledge, would love the Lord your God with our soul, our actions, and then with our heart, our emotions, and that's what we're doing today in the last few weeks. And what better book in the Bible to talk about loving God with our emotions than the Psalms, and the Psalms are, as you've ever read the Psalms, they're a bit emotional and sometimes cringy. It's like a, watching a train wreck at times. Um, but as stated before, the Psalms are my favorite book in all of the Bible. Why? Because it reminds Byron not to be a spiritual robot, that there is a God in the universe that wants to know me, that wants me to come before Him with my concerns, my prayers, and my thoughts. In all of my mess. Athanasius, the early church father, said of the Psalms, the Psalms become like a mirror to the person singing them so that he might perceive himself in the emotions of his soul. Psalm 19 really answers the question, how can we know God? How has he revealed himself? How has he spoken to us? Because if God truly has desired or truly has designed us to have a relationship with Him, then it would make sense that the God of the universe actually communicated with us and made Himself known to us. So then how can we have a relationship with Him? How can we know Him? Which begs the question, I I would like you to answer this question if you are brave enough to this morning but what are some ways that we build a relationship with people what are some ways that we build a relationship or get to know somebody spend time, spend time with them very good what are some other ways we get to know people communication, communication. good what else ask questions good what else yeah vulnerability good what else what's that yeah yeah What else? If you think about y'all nailed it. I nailed it. Okay. So if you think about any type of relationship, it takes two things in order to build a relationship. It takes time and it takes communication in order to really be vulnerable, in order to trust somebody, in order to really know someone. It requires that we spend time with them and we communicate with them. That God really is no different, that knowing God requires time and requires communication. But to think God is relational is a bit of a paradox because we can't smell, taste, or see God. So how do we build a relationship with him? If you, for instance, if you went to dinner with God, okay, and you pretended that he was across the table from you and you spoke to him like you would a normal human being, what would everybody around you think? They would think that you've lost your mind. So how do we spend time with God? How has God revealed himself and communicated to his people that he Wants to know, and that's what we see in Psalm chapter 19. So, if you have your scripture. Open it with me. Psalm chapter 19 describes how God has communicated and how God has spoken. Stanley Two Saint says says this: If God has spoken, there's nothing more important than to hear what He has said. If God has spoken, there's nothing more important than to hear what He has said. When we think about how God has spoken, we think mainly in the two ways that are described in Psalm 19. But there's actually more ways that God has spoken to us than just in nature and in his word. For instance, you can see God speak in history. You soon learn that God is a moral God. No country, no nation long exists if it blatantly disobeys God's principles. God has revealed himself in the past by dreams and visions. God reveals himself in times past and still today by miracles. God breaks into the long continuum of time, space, and matter to perform miracles. Supremely, God has revealed himself by the Lord Jesus, as it says in the beginning of the book of Hebrews. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways in these last days... He has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. But there are two other ways that God has spoken. One is called general revelation, and one is called special revelation. General revelation is that God speaks to us through nature, through the skies, that we'll see in verses 1 through 6. Number two, that God communicates to us through his special revelation or in his scriptures. And that's what people see in Psalm chapter 19. People see that Psalm 19 breaks down into just two main sections, verses 1 through 6 and then 7 through basically 11. But what we actually see in these 14 verses is that the last part is actually part 3. Just like any sermon has three parts, Psalm 19 has it as well. What we see in verses 12 through 14 is the psalmist's reaction, the change that takes place in his life from hearing from the Lord. Notice how God reveals himself in the skies. How can we know God? How can we love him with our heart and our emotions? Notice what it says in verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And notice the word God. That Hebrew word is El. It is the generic name for God in a sense. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. How can we know God? God communicates himself to us. We have a relationship, first off, by recognizing God through the skies, through the heavens. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Okay, let's pause for just a moment. You all are a bunch of really smart people because you have to be smart if you live in this town. It's just genetics or something. Um, what do the skies, what do the universe, what do the heavens tell you about God? One of the things I'm going to encourage you to do this week is I want you to go on a, on a walk at night And I want you to just answer the question, what do the skies, what do the heavens, what do the stars tell me about God? Well, first off, what? Number one, that God exists, correct? So the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanses declaring the work of his hands. Number one, the skies reveal his existence and glory. That there is no other explanation that really makes sense for why the universe exists other than a creator. That's why it says in Psalm 14 verse 1, the fool says in their heart, there is no God. Why are atheists fools? Because there is no other explanation for the universe other than a creator. Nothing makes sense. I, I was listening to some... Uh, interview of an atheist. I don't know how long ago it was. It just kind of stuck in my mind. I don't know where I saw it, when I saw it, but I just remember this conversation. And it basically, this guy doesn't believe that there is a god. And then the guy asked him, "Okay, where do you believe the universe came from? Right? That that is a necessary question. If you don't believe in God, then how in the world did we get here? Okay? And then he said, "Well, the universe exists because it was it was supposed to." And I'm like, "Huh?" The fool says in the heart, there is no God. One of the reasons why I believe there is a God is because, number one, that we exist. Something can't come from nothing. It's the only thing that makes any sense. But the reason I believe our God, Yahweh, is the God is because, number one, the Bible stands the test of time. I mean, if you really... I've been in full-time ministry for almost a decade. and I've been teaching the scripture for, I guess, going on 20 years. And I stand more convinced today than ever that the Bible is true. It stands the test of time. It explains everything. Number two, Christianity is the most complete system in the world. I mean, think about it. It makes sense of so many things. It makes sense of why the world the way it is, why we die... Right? How to have relationships, healthy relationships with other people. It explains almost everything in life. And then number three, Yahweh is the only God. Jehovah is the only God that pursued us, that made a way for us to get to him. I mean, just think about every other religion. Let's just speak about this. Every other religion is what? Mankind trying to get to God. Who is God just on a philosophical level? God is holy and perfect. He is set apart. How could an imperfect man possibly do enough good works to make himself perfect, to earn his presence into the presence of a perfect God? It makes no sense. God had to intervene on our behalf. It's the only thing that really makes sense from a philosophical level. Christianity is the only religion that God came to us. The skies are telling of the glory of God. They explain and they show his existence. Number two, the skies reveal his consistency. Verse one again the heavens are telling, the expanse is telling. Those are both participles showing continual action. That there isn't a split second in time where the universe around us is not communicating the existence and the glory of God. You can be anywhere on earth and see God's magnificence and his glory. You can be in the bottom of the Grand Canyon, you can be in the middle of a cotton field in Alabama, and you can be in the middle of the swamps of Louisiana. That the glory of God, his existence in the heavens are telling of the glory of God continually. Notice the theme of constancy continues, verse 2. Day to day pours forth speech Night to night reveals knowledge. What is that? That is a figure of speech, right? The, the day to the day, they don't really speak, but they speak in some way. Notice verse 4. There is no speech nor other words. Their line is not heard. Their voice is not heard. Yet their line has gone out through all the earth. The word line there kind of gives the impression in Hebrew of a writing in the sky. That yes, the stars and the moon and the sun do not physically speak, but when you look into the heavens, it writes upon the skies that God exists in all of his glory. Their utterances to the ends of the earth. The skies reveal his existence, consistency, and verses 4 through 5, his infinitude. In them he has placed a tent for the sun. Just think about the imagery of verse 4b. That the universe is so large, that God is so large, that in the skies it would place a tent for the sun. Which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. The skies are so large that they act as a tent for the sun. In Hebrew, in the Hebrew culture... The Bridegroom The Groom himself is the star of the show, just like the Sun is the star of our solar system in a lot of ways, in a Hebrew marriage and a wedding ceremony, the Groom is the star of the show. And uh, I'm glad the Bride is they, it well deserved in our culture. OK? It would be weird if everybody cared what I looked like, OK? Um, just strange. OK? It's just so bizarre to me. But here it's what he's saying, is a Bridegroom coming out of his chamber. The star of our solar system right, comes out in, in the sun, in the skies, and everything around us. Magnify, t- testify to God's existence and his glory. The sun rejoices as a strong man to run his course. It's rising. as from one end of the heavens. What is it talking about? It's talking about the path of the sun during the day. And his circuit is to the other end of them. And there's nothing hidden from his heat. How do we know God? Number one, we know Him through the skies. What's the problem with that? If God only revealed Himself through the skies, then at best people could be deists or maybe theists. We could see that God exists, that He is some clockmaker in the distance without special revelation. We could understand that God exists, but he would just be distant. And if you notice in your text, if you look at your text, verses 1 through 6, I believe, only uses God, the name God, one time. And it is generic, that David realizes that the skies themselves, yes, they testify to the existence of God, but you could really only understand that God exists through that, that he's infinite, that he's consistent. But you can't really know him on a personal level just by the skies and the stars around you. Because notice the change in vocabulary. If you have your text, verses 1 through 6 uses God, is the Hebrew word El. (coughs) And then verses 7a uses what? All caps Lord, right? So he's saying verses 7 through 10, this is how I can know the true God. The one that has created me, the covenant-keeping God, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. The Hebrew word, it means blameless or spotless. The law of the Lord, the law of Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. I am who I am. The greatest of all gods is perfect, restoring the soul. If you have your notes, God's word replenishes. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand in this. How many of you ever felt that way towards the scripture? That man, you may be dry in your spiritual life. You may just feel distant from God. But when you pick up the law of the Lord and you open it, it just replenishes your soul. You know, at different seasons of life, we go through different things, and there are times where I open the scripture and it's just like rivers of living water. And there are other times I pick up the scripture and it's just like I like got cold textbook. But that's not a reflection of it, it's a reflection of me. The law of the Lord is perfect restoring the soul it replenishes the word in the hebrew for restoring the soul is a participle again continuing action that if i actually open the scripture to build a relationship with the covenant keeping god all caps lord then the scripture itself replenishes my soul when i was in seminary seminary turned the bible into a textbook into something that should be studied and quantified. Um, I'm not, it's not disparaging about seminary. It's just, that's why they call it cemetery to a lot of people. It's because a lot of people go to seminary to have their faith die. It happens. It's just the truth. Seminary turned the book into a textbook, something to study. And then some of us look at the Bible as an old, dusty book, but it's none of those. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring Continual basis, my soul, the inner part of my being. That's what it's designed to do. What does the scripture say? It's not some old dusty textbook. It's not some old science experiment where you're supposed to parse Greek verbs all the time, Byron. It is a living book. The word of God is what? Living and active. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. We should look at the scripture, verse 7a, as it replenishes our soul, replenishes our being. If you feel dry spiritually lately, and maybe, you know, maybe you're reading the Bible. Maybe you feel dry on a spiritual basis. You just feel cold But it's not a reflection of the Bible. It's a reflection of your spiritual life. Are we listening to the scripture? God stepped down into time. And he wrote an entire book to help us know him. And to replenish our inner being. I mean, what kind of God does that? It's amazing. Not only sent his Savior or his Son to be our Savior, but he also gave us a book to replenish us.
0: Will we let it?
1: Because it's living and active Verse 7b says this The law of the Lord is perfect restoring the soul The testimonies of the Lord are sure Making wise the simple God's word reasons It reasons Now some people say that God's word allows simple people to make wise decisions That's what it's saying there I just think it's saying that it makes wise the simple It makes sense of life It explains so many different things of life. The Bible explains complicated things. It explains why we suffer. It explains why we die. Read the book of Genesis. It explains redemption. It explains the end of all things. God's word replenishes. It reasons, verse 8a, the precepts of the Lord. Notice he saying Lord, Lord, Lord. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. I couldn't think of a good word for this one, so I just came up with God's word resonates. It resonates, because you can't say is rejoicing, okay? It just wouldn't make any sense in English. God's word resonates. It rejoices the heart. God's word should bring us conviction, but also should bring us joy and replenishment, and it should help us make sense of the world. Verse 8b The commandment of the Lord, notice that, is pure, enlightening the eyes. I said that God's word redirects. Literally, verse 8b says, bringing light to the eyes. Again, enlightening is a participle, showing continual action. I mean, what's interesting about this particular poem is that there are participles almost everywhere, showing the continual action of all of these verbs. The commandment of the Lord is pure, continually enlightening the eyes. What does that mean? Right? That's the question. There's two different things it could mean. Number one, enlightening the eyes. This particular word enlightening is used of Jonathan in, I believe, 1 Samuel chapter 14, where Saul gives the foolish order that no one should eat. Remember that order? And then Jonathan eats the honey and it says that his eyes were brightened. It makes you alive. It brings life to your eyes and into your soul but i think it also can mean something else enlightening the eyes it brings light to our eyes can your eyes let me just ask you the question can your eyes really operate without light how many of you have ever gotten out of bed on a late at night it's dark right and you can't see a thing okay you been there before okay Right. And you get up like four times. OK, so it's, it's late at night. You can't see anything. You're trying to make your way to the bathroom. OK, sorry for TMI there. OK. And and you smash your toe. Anybody else have that? OK. OK. And you scream and everybody's wondering what happened to you. OK. I mean, your eyes can't operate without lights. That's the way I see this means, enlightening the eyes. It brings light to my eyes. It redirects me. It guides me. How many, you don't have the reason. How many of you have ever been far from the Lord and you smashed your toe spiritually? You made poor decisions. I mean, come on. Amen. Some of us are close to the Lord and we still make poor decisions. Okay. It's just the way it is. But that's what the Word of God does. It enlightens our eyes. It gives us direction. It illumines the darkness. It helps us make, guide our steps. Verse 9a, the fear of the Lord. The word fear is another word for the scripture. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. God's word remains. Verse 9, so verses 7 and 8 really talk about the effects of the word. And verse 9 talks about what the word of God is. The word of God remains. I mean, think about it. There are only three things that last forever. Three things that last forever. What are they? God, people, and his word, right? Right? The word of God endures forever. The word of God remains. Verse 9b, the judges of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. God's word is righteous. It is pure, is without error, It is inspired of God. What's interesting about the psalm is it almost becomes, in a weird kind of way, a, a lab experiment. Uh, David is looking at the heavens. He's looking at the whole scripture and telling you what it does for you. It redirects. It resonates. It, do, it, it does all these things. And then he talks personally. Let me just ask you the question. When you enter the scripture, when you read it for yourself, what should happen? When you read the scripture for your own spiritual life, what should happen? Verse 10. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Verse 11. Moreover, by them your servant is warned in keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors, acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sin. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgressions. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Before I go any further on that, I just want to say something. The sovereign God of the universe has spoken In his word and he wants us to enjoy it and he has spoken the question is not how has God spoken to me the question to me is will I listen right I mean the the first thing to go okay I'm gonna pick on all the married men in the room okay in just a second the first thing to go in a healthy marriage is what Uh, communication right married ladies in the room have you ever been speaking to your husband okay and you get done with this huge long paragraph and then at the end of that she says what did you hear a word I just said okay uh, that's, that's, uh, that's on you, man. Pay attention, right? It is listening that God has communicated to us through His Word, through the Spirit of God that it dwells inside of us. But the question is not, has God communicated? The question is what? That are we going to listen? Are we going to hear what He has to say? And if I hear what he has to say, the word of God is going to replenish me. It's going to redirect me. It's going to resonate with me. It's going to create joy. If God has spoken, there's nothing more important than to hear what he has said. But there is something more important. What is more important than hearing what God has said? What is Yeah, what is more important is how we hear, how we listen. What is the telltale sign of when you open the scripture that you're actually reading it? Verse 11. I'm going to read it again. Forgive me for. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who could discern his errors? Equip me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sin. Notice this next line. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Spiritual restoration and transformation happen when we receive God's communication. That's why I see the point of Psalm 19. Spiritual restoration, verses 7-10, through and spiritual transformation happen when I receive God's communication. When I realize that he exists, that he is infinite, that he is consistent, that he loves me, that he is the covenant-keeping God, that he is Yahweh, that he is the greatest of all gods, I am who I am, and that he has spoken in his word, and his word should change my life forever. The scripture transforms us, and it transforms our view of sin. Moreover, by them, your servant is warned, in keeping them, there is great reward. When one sees the revelation of God, without question, the first thing he sees is his own sinfulness. Let me say that again. When one sees the revelation of God, without question, the first thing he sees is his own sins. Is that true? Job, Isaiah, Peter... When they all saw the revelation of God was the first thing they did. They became very aware of their own mistakes. Notice verse 11. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Notice verse 12 again. turn the page in my text here. Who can discern his errors, equip me of my hidden faults? What is he saying? So he looking, he's looking at the scripture in verses 7 through 10, and he's realizing that by them his servant is warned. Verse 12, who can discern his errors, equip me of hidden sins, hidden faults. The scripture makes us aware of the things that we don't even realize are sin. You know, I mean, they're really, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, there's really—I guess there may be more than this, and we can have a theological debate after church today if you want to. It's cool, um, but there's really two types of sins, right? The sins I'm aware of, and the sins I'm not aware of. Okay, right? I mean, am I the only one that—is that true? Can you can you go there? The sins that I'm aware of, and the sins I'm not aware of. We all make mistakes. Amen. Go talk to your a friend. Or your wife, if you don't believe you make mistakes, they'll tell you all of it. Okay, so it's just the way we are. Acquit me of my hidden faults. There are things in our life that we make mistakes and we don't even realize it. And the scripture makes us aware of them. Can I just speak to all the people in the room? Okay. Um, a lot of the wedges that we have and our relationship with the Lord and a lot of our, the wedges we have in our relationships with other beings are placed there because of the sin we do not see. The way you talk to somebody, the way you treat somebody, the way you neglect this, the way you do this. Sometimes, guys, we become so comfortable with our mistakes that we fail to even see them anymore. Am I the only one? Am I, am I, am I, everybody agree with me on that one? Equip me of my hidden faults, verse 13, but also hold me back from presumptuous sin. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sin, verse 12. talks about the hidden sins that we do not see, that we don't even notice. And then number two, it talks about presumptuous sins, the sins that I choose to do. These are the ones we don't talk about. These are the ones that we do privately in our mind or in the closets of our personal life. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. These are the sins that you choose to do. And then notice this next phrase. Anybody else relate to this part? Let them not, what? Say that word with me. Rule over me. Anybody else notice that? How if we, when we let a sin in, we have a momentary lapse of judgment. And then the enemy goes, thank you very much. Now I'm going to set up camp, and now I'm going to drive in wedges in your relationship with the Lord and in your relationship with your people in your life. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. He's saying, Lord, just, just allow me not to make knowing mistakes. Allow me not to choose, to disobey you. The word rule here, I looked it up, and my Hebrew was rusty, I But I got better at this one, I guess. Um, The word rule in verse 13 is the same word for desire or rule in Genesis 4-7. What does that say? God is speaking to Cain. And he says, behold, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to rule you. Sin has a way of ruling our lives, even if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. That if you let the enemy in, in just one particular moment, he says, thank you very much, I'm going to set up camp, and I'm going to smack you in the head. Okay? With shame, and with all these other things. Sin has a way. The scripture makes us aware. Listen, friends. um, We are all human beings. And we all make mistakes. What should you do when you make a mistake? You should just go before the Lord. If you confess your sins, what? He is faithful and righteous to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. God has spoken in his word and allows you to know him and his word makes you aware of what what hinders you from knowing him further. How can you tell if you're hearing from God? That's a really... Let me ask that question. How can you tell if you're hearing from God? It's not emotion. It's not a feeling. It's not a lot of other things. How does David hear from, from the Lord? What happens? He is aware of his own life, of his own sin. Listen, if you want to know, if you're hearing from the Scripture, you, listen, you can... Read the Bible all you want. You can read the whole Bible in a year if you're cool and you're like super spiritual. Okay, you can read a devotion. You can read uh, the whole Bible every day. But if you're not profoundly aware of the mistakes you make and that you confess it before the Lord, you're not really hearing. That's what I see. If you are blind to your sin, then you are the man in James chapter one. If you have, if you struggle with forgiveness, then you are Esau who hates Jacob. If you are allowing sin to set up camp, then you are David walking on his house when he sees Bathsheba. If you are trying to control everything and everyone around you, then you are Saul as the demon torments him. If you are impulsive, making rash decisions, then you are Peter. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me, and then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgressions. So if you notice, verse 13 is kind of the negative, and then you have the positive. So how do you know if you know God? Number one, you have an awareness of your sin. But then also, how do you know if you know God and you have a relationship with him? is you desire to reflect him. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth. So what is that? The, what comes out of me and the meditations of my heart, what is in me. Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my Rock and my Redeemer. One who knows Christ is one who is like Christ. Um, you know, we in evangelical circles, we um, can appear. We, we okay. We know how to put on a good face for everybody. Um, We know how to say the right thing. Sunday school answers like everything in Sunday school. The answer is Jesus or the Bible. I learned that when I was like 10. Um, But as I see the scripture, when we are really relating to the Lord, we are profoundly aware of our own unholiness. And we desire to reflect him in all areas. Both our external world, let let the words in my mouth, and our internal world. Meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Friends, how do we love God with our hearts? It is by seeking Him. By opening the scripture and letting it replenish us. Letting it quench our spiritual thirst. If you are dry spiritually, then guess what? That makes you normal. Okay? We all go through seasons. But I would encourage you not to just make a habit of reading something but listening to what the scripture has to say because think about how do you build a relationship with somebody it takes two things it takes time and it takes communication number one god has communicated he has spoken so then what's the only variable Whether I listen to that communication or number two, will I just spend time with him? Will I walk with him? Will I hear from him? Will I listen to his spirit? Will I see the scripture not as a dusty old textbook, but as something that is living and active and it it pierces my soul and my spirit? Spiritual restoration and transformation happen when I receive God's communication. The question I have for this whole sermon series, and it was only three weeks long, is really this. How is your walk with God? How is your walk with God? And I don't mean that in a shameful way. I'm not here to clobber anybody. I don't. I mean, if you want to clobber somebody, then I've mean, I got plenty of problems myself. Um, But how is your spiritual life? How is your walk with God? You know, I, I feel like today as I was preparing this, I felt like a doctor, okay, who sent off for some blood work, okay? And today I'm asking, how is your spiritual blood work? How is your soul? And the test of your health, your spiritual health, is not how much time you spend in the scripture. It's not the devotion you use. The test is not what church you go to, or spending time in this or that, the test, if you're listening and growing in the Lord, is two things. Am I aware and repentant of my sin? And do I desire to reflect Him in all things? That's it. that's the way I see it. I'm called like I see it. This is a spiritual test. This is blood work, okay? That's it. That is a sign of spiritual health. Am I aware of my sin? And my mistakes, and do I repent from it? And do I say like Him in verse 13, keep me back from presumptuous sins? Or, and, am I just desiring to surrender to Him? And not all the words that come out of my mouth, all the actions, and all the thoughts in my mind, do they desire to reflect His glory and magnificence, and i am I becoming Christ-like? That's it. I mean, that is the spiritual test of our health. God has communicated. Spiritual restoration and transformation happen when I receive God's communication. Allow me to close with a story. Um, When I was 17 years old, my family decided to go to Yosemite National Park. Now, how many of you have ever been to Yosemite National Park? Okay, then you have been blessed. Okay. And if you haven't gone to Yosemite National Park, please go. It is pretty awesome. Okay, just saying. I was 17 years old, and my family decided to take a trip out west, and we drove along kind of the Pacific coast, went up down Highway 1. And then for about a week, we decided to go to Yosemite National Park. And as a 17-year-old knucklehead, you know, you think you're kind of invincible. And my twin sister and I one day decided to, to hike to something that I was unaware of, to the top of something called Half Dome. Anybody ever heard of Half Dome before? Okay, it's like the most prominent feature, that and L Cap are the most prominent features in all of Yosemite. And to this point as a 17 year old, I had never probably walked more than three miles, okay? I was not uh, one of those. Um, and I decided to set out, and this thing was a 15 mile hike, a uh, mile up in elevation and a mile back down. I really didn't know what I was getting into. So we set off. My twin sister and I set off on this 15-mile hike, and all I carry is like a 20-ounce bottle of water. Okay, big mistake. Okay, and then and then I think I had like one granola bar. Okay. Knucklehead. And then to make it worse, what I thought would be a good idea, because I thought I would be bored the whole time, is to chew sunflower seeds and spit it out. Okay? So I'm spitting out all of my hydration. Okay? So, this is all bad. Okay? You know where this story is going. So the hike up was great. I mean, we hiked to the top of Half Dome. If you've ever done that, you literally walk up the side of the mountain, like straight up in the air. It's terrifying, but I was invincible, so it's fine. And then on the way back, I thought I was going to die. I was suffering from massive dehydration. I wimped out on everything, okay? My sister was carrying my pack and my one drop of water I had left, and I was like hallucinating, And um, I was whining and complaining, okay? I was dry and thirsty, and then I'll never forget it. Right on the way back, the most beautiful halo of light, okay, was this water fountain in the middle of the path. Whoever put that there thought of me, okay? And I just remember that water fountain and how it just rescued my soul, Many of you today have been walking with God for a long time and you are thirsty because you have not sipped God's word and listened to it in a while. If you're thirsty, drink. If you're weary, come to him. If you're weak, listen to his word. If you're struggling with sin, repent. And if you're dry, find in him the rivers of living water. For those who do will not be disappointed. Restoration and transformation happen when I listen, when I receive God's communication. Pray with me. Father, we thank you today. I thank you for Calvary and the many souls that have braved the Arctic weather outside. And uh we thank you for them. I thank you for our church body and the many of those that aren't here today. I just pray for everyone and Lord I you know, I, I'm not here to, to shame or do anything. I'm just here to tell the truth, to be a straight shooter. And Lord, I just pray that that we would we would just listen to your scripture. And it would make us aware of our faults. So we can repent of those and take out those wedges. And Lord, it would also align our life to want to give you glory. Lord, that's what I pray. I pray that we would be people that love your word and that seek to apply it to our lives. we thank you that you have revealed yourself, that you're not just a distant clockmaker, but that you've told us how to live. And Lord, I pray for those that do not know you as Savior, Lord, that may be here today and aren't sure where they stand with you. I pray that they would come before you and that they would believe in your Son, Jesus Christ, that you have come and you have died for their sins. And Lord, that you would open their eyes, that they would trust in you as their Savior. But well, thank you for this church. I thank you for this past week in the missions conference, and uh, I just give you give you glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.